Good morning. This week's study of James is chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Patience in suffering. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the, the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. In case you don't know, my name is Chris. I'm one of the leaders here at Dorchester Community Church. If you hadn't gathered already, um, our title for today is Be Patient in Suffering, continuing our series from the book of James, and this is the penultimate one in the series. Now, if you came to church today looking to be uplifted, when you see the title Be Patient in Suffering, you're probably thinking, I don't think I'm going to be uplifted today. I hope by the end of this talk that you will feel uplifted Yesterday, I did the walk from uh, Lulworth Cove to Durdle Door up that steep slope. Anyone done that? Yeah, quite a few of you. It is quite a steep slope, probably steeper than it, it first appears. And when you're on climbing on that slope, your legs start to ache, your heart starts to work harder, you start to sweat, and then you start to smile as you hear other people's kids saying, I'm not going any further, you've got to carry me. And you've got to be really persistent uh, and patient in your suffering until you get to the top. And when you get to the top, you have these amazing views of the Lulworth Cove and the Durdle Door. And it's incredible and it's all worth the while. But as you're struggling, it's difficult to be patient because the end never seems to come. Earlier this week, or in the last week, I was meant to be going to the dentist. So it was quite ironic to be having the title, Be Patient in Suffering. Fortunately, it was cancelled, but of course, it's got to be rescheduled. But it it reminded me of a story about a dentist. A patient was going to the dentist, and they were really nervous and just didn't like going to the dentist at all. And they said to the dentist, will you be really gentle with me? And the dentist says, of course, come and sit down and lie back. Open wide, requested the dentist. And as he began the examination of the patient, he said, startled, good gracious, you've got the biggest cavity I've ever seen. The biggest cavity I've ever seen. Okay, replied the patient. 
I'm scared enough without you saying something like that twice. I didn't, said the dentist. That was the echo. (laughs) I've also recently had a hernia operation. And all went as well as expected, and the wound has healed really well. And I was desperate to get back to normal activities, because I felt fine. But of course, you're told that you shouldn't do anything for four to six weeks that's strenuous or lift anything heavy, which is really hard to do when you feel great, but you've got to protect the wound not to tear it open. In other words, I had to be patient and let the full healing take place which is not easy in so many respects when you're eager to move on. And that is part of what we're going to be looking at today, being patient in suffering and letting the full healing take place. If you watch the programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, you will know it's a test of endurance, overcoming your fears, putting up with discomforts, putting up with hunger and other people who have irritating habits or behave badly. It's a kind of being patient in suffering whilst knowing there's a prize at the end of it. Last week, Paul told us how foolish it is if we just live for today without regard for the future and eternity. This week we're looking at being patient in our current circumstances or in our current suffering. There are six verses in our passage for today, and I had the dilemma, do I try and cover the teaching in all six verses, or do I home in on just one or two of the verses? And the more I looked into this, the more I felt that each verse had something important to say to us. So while some verses will get more attention than others, I hope each verse will speak into our lives and be relevant to us. James, in his book, tells us to undertake something in each of these six verses. And verse 7 and 8 are closely related in that they talk about the return of Jesus. So firstly, in verse 7, he tells us to be patient For what? In waiting for the Lord's return. Christians and the Bible teaches that Jesus will be returning to this world one day. And that today is only part of a season. In the same way a farmer waits for the autumn rain to soften the ground for planting and nourishing his crop... Without the early rain, the seed which he has sown would not germinate at all. Without the late rain in springtime, the grain would not mature. He has to wait for the right time for the harvest to ripen, for the rain to have come. He cannot hurry the process, but he doesn't take the summer off and hope all goes well in the fields. There is still much work to do. To ensure a good harvest. In the same way, we need to be patient and wait for Jesus' return. We can't make him return any sooner, but while we wait, there is much work we can do in advancing God's kingdom. 
Our age of instant everything has caused us to lose the ability to wait. We expect to learn patience instantly, and in our hurry, we miss the contradiction. Moving on to verse 8, Jesus tells us to take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Both the farmer and the Christian have to live by faith, looking toward the future reward for their labours. We can't live as if Jesus is never coming back. We need to work faithfully to build his kingdom, for the king will come when the time is ripe. The New Testament is very clear that no man knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return, only God. The New Testament is also clear that the second coming of Jesus is not something for which we can get ready for when it comes. We must be already ready for its coming. The Bible tells us it will be as sudden as lightning across the sky and as unexpected as a thief in the night. I can remember, and maybe you can at times in the past, being startled in the middle of the night when you're suddenly woken up by a noise in the house. And before you can get your brain in gear, your heart is starting to pound and you, the adrenaline's really going. You're starting to fear because you think someone has broken into the house. Only to find in the morning that a picture's fallen off the wall or a book has fallen off its shelf. But in the same way, we'll be shocked at the coming of Jesus. Some of you will know the song written by Larry Norman that contains the lines, A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. I'm not going to consider the argument whether there is what some believers call a rapture before the second coming of Jesus, which this song suggests, or whether they happen at the same time. But purely to highlight the fact that the second coming of Jesus will take us by surprise and therefore we need to be ready at all times. 1 Peter 4 verse 7 says, The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. God does not see time as men see time. To him, a thousand years is just a watch in the night. But probably the most important thing to take from this verse 8, which tells us to take courage that the coming of the Lord is near, is that this world is not purposeless. It's not aimless and it's not planless. It is going somewhere, despite the terrible conditions of our planet and despite the terrible things that people do to each other. There is the brightest of futures, something worth holding on to more than anything else. There will come a time when there is perfect love all around, 
where there is perfect peace all around, where there is perfect contentment all around. Anyone not want that? Let's make sure we are ready and may none of us be caught out. Secondly, in verse 9, James tells us not to grumble about each other or we will be judged. Are any of us above criticism? Only the great judge to come is eligible to criticise, being the only perfect one. When things go wrong, it's so easy to blame someone else rather than owning our own share of the responsibility. Before we judge others for their shortcomings, we always need to remember that Jesus will one day evaluate each one of us. He will not allow us to get away with shifting the blame to others, as we all have to give account. Having said that, there are many situations where there is someone who is predominantly at fault and who is predominantly to blame and may need confronting or in some unresolvable cases walking away from. But God expects his children to generally be in harmony with one another. That's where unconditional love, the love given by Jesus towards each one of us, comes in. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. And it's about a soldier who was finally coming home from the Vietnam War, having fought. And he called his parents from San Francisco. Mum, Dad, I'm coming home, but I have a favour to ask. I have a friend I'd like to bring home with me. Sure, they replied, we'd love to meet him. There's something you should know, the son continued. He was hurt pretty badly in the fighting. He stepped on a landmine and lost an arm and a leg. He has nowhere else to go, and I want him to come and live with us. I'm sorry to hear that, son. Maybe we can find him somewhere to live. No, Mum and Dad, I want him to live with us. Son, said the father, you don't know what you're asking. Someone with such a handicap would be a terrible burden on us. We have our lives to live, and we can't let something like this interfere with our lives. I think you should just come home and forget about this guy. He'll find a way to live on his own. At that point, the son hung up the phone. The parents heard nothing more from him. But a few days later, they received a phone call from the San Francisco police. Their son had died from falling from a building, they were told. The police believed it was suicide. The grief-stricken parents flew to San Francisco and were taken to the city morgue to identify the body of their son. They recognised him, but to to their horror, they discovered something they didn't know. Their son had only one arm and one leg. A sad story, but an illustration of what true love should all be about. 
loving people, whatever a person's condition or whatever their reaction. That is the love our Heavenly Father has for us and shows to us. It doesn't matter what we've done or haven't done. It doesn't matter what other people think of us. God the Father cannot help himself but love us. And if you're not feeling very loved this morning, you need to know that. God cannot help but love you. He paid the maximum price to save you. And he made you just the way you are. There is no one else quite like you. Don't ever think you wish you were someone else. Because in effect you were telling God he's made a mistake. And God never makes mistakes. Life can be tough. And without God it's even tougher. Or at times impossible. That's why we've got so many drug addicts, alcoholics, people who commit suicide. Don't grumble about others. Love them unconditionally. Thirdly, in verse 10, James tells us to look at the prophets for examples in suffering. And he highlights in verse 11 to look at Job as a good example. Last week, Paul mentioned Job as someone who had great wealth. Well, just to remind you, the book of Job is a gripping drama of riches to rags and back to riches again. He's a very prosperous farmer with thousands of sheep, camels and other livestock. A large family and lots of servants. Life was good and God had blessed him. After all, God himself claimed that Job in chapter 1 verse 8 was God-fearing was blameless and shunned evil. Satan, the accuser, and our accuser too, comes before God and claims that Job only trusts God because of his wealth and everything that's going well for him. And so God allows Satan to test Job's faith and how real it is. Satan firstly destroys Job's children, his servants, his livestock, his herdsmen, and his home. But unbelievably, he still continues to trust in God. Next, Satan attacks Job physically, covering him with painful boils. And even Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. But Job suffers in silence. Job's friends tell him he must be suffering because of sins he's committed. It's easy to think that we have all the answers, but in reality, only God knows exactly why things happen as they do. Of course, some of our sufferings are down to us and the decisions we make and their consequences And some of our sufferings are also down to other people's decisions and their consequences. And then there's other sufferings that we have no explanation for. The life story of Job shows us that we live in a fallen world where good behaviour is not always rewarded and bad behaviour is not always punished. Where we see a notorious criminal prospering or an innocent child in pain, 
We say that's wrong, and it is. Sin has twisted justice and made our world unpredictable and ugly. The story of Job shows a good man suffering for no apparent reason. And sadly, our world is like that. But Job's story does not end in despair. Through Job's life, we see that faith in God is justified when our situations look hopeless. Faith based on rewards or prosperity is hollow. To be unshakable, faith must be built on the confidence that God's ultimate purpose will come to pass. I'm sure many of you, like me, will have prayed prayers expecting God to answer in a certain way. But he didn't. And we don't understand why. We may have had the notion in our head that if God answered our prayer when we pray, if God can't answer our prayer when we pray so earnestly, then how can we continue to worship such a God or even continue to believe he exists? I wonder how many of us have ever thought that. God has the big picture of life. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. How can we possibly understand why God doesn't answer in the way we want? If we don't always if we don't know what he knows and don't see what he sees. And if God always answered our prayers in the way we want or in our timing, we would in effect be manipulating God and he would no longer be God. That is not to say there is no point in praying, as the New Testament tells us to pray without ceasing. And many of you I know will witness to the fact of God answering, answering your prayers in an amazing way. In Job chapter 2 and verse 9, Job's wife says to him, Are you still trying to be godly when God has done all this to you? Curse him and die. Job replied, You talk like some heathen woman. Shall we only receive pleasant things from the hand of God and never anything unpleasant? If I'm honest, I find that quite difficult to hear. Because I've always believed God wants to bless us. But sometimes to receive the blessing or understand the blessing, we have to go through the pain or the suffering. We kind of think if we could eliminate pain the world, uh, from the world, that would be a good thing. But would it? For some people, they don't have to imagine what a pain-free world would look like. They're living it. A small percentage of the world have a genetic disorder called congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis, or CIPA as it's known, which basically means they feel no pain. Whilst that might sound like a good thing, it's not. It's more like hell living in this world without pain. Pain is a frontline defence of the body. If we touch a hot cooker 
Our body reacts with pain that causes us to quickly move our hand. The pain is a defense mechanism that keeps us from further harm. Pain allows us, alerts us that something is wrong and we need to stop or seek help. Without pain, we would be in grave danger and not even know it. There is benefit in pain when, say, we step on a rusty nail and if we don't react, we're even more likely to be badly infected. Pain is what causes us to learn and grow. It's not saying that every time we stub our toe, we become a better person. But there are pains that cause us to grow. So in some ways, pain could be said to be a blessing. I know it almost never seems that way at the time, but pain does have a purpose. Sometimes our unwillingness to face our pain is a far greater danger than the pain itself. Think about life. Where were we a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? What were the catalysts that caused us to grow, to become better at our job, to be a better spouse? What caused us to appreciate life more, to mature from a teen to an adult? Almost certainly, what caused the most growth in our life was some kind of pain. We grow the most in the hard seasons of life. Growth is spurred by failures, losses, challenges, difficult situations, breakups, financial woes, and the result of calamities that hit our life. In other words, pain is what causes us to grow. We might not like it, but it's true. However, there is a difference between pain and suffering. All suffering includes pain, but not all pain is suffering. Suffering being the pain that will not go away, that keeps us in bed, that ravages our body and takes everything of joy from our life. God can still use that for good, but it's difficult to call suffering good. Pain, on the other hand, is good. Pain is meant to be a blessing. It's through pain that we will grow and develop into who God has created us to be. The problem is our culture sees pain as the enemy, sees failure as the end, sees challenges as something to be avoided. Such an attitude leads to a lack of growth. Job came through his terrible pains and heartache and God once again blessed him with riches and prosperity. In verse 11, James tells us to give great honour to those who endure under suffering. It's always a comfort to feel that others have gone through that which we have to go through. James highlights that the people of God, such as the prophets, could never have done their work and borne their witness if they had not endured under suffering. 
Matthew 24 verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Job is known for his patient endurance, but actually there is a sense in which Job was anything but patient. He passionately resented what had come upon him. He passionately agonised over the terrible thought that God might have forgotten him and forsaken him. But the great fact about Job is that in spite of all his torrent of questioning that tore at his heart, he never lost faith in God. In Job chapter 19 and verse 25, despite of all of his suffering, Job is able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. If we are able to say that, whatever situation we are in, whatever suffering we are facing, then we stand alongside Job. Job struggled and questioned, probably like most of us from time to time, and sometimes he even defied. But the flame of faith was never extinguished from his heart. Back in July 2014, uh, over seven years ago now, some of you will know that I had a double heart bypass. Being fit and healthy, it came as a bit of a shock, more than a bit of a shock. I didn't fulfil any of the main criteria you would expect for someone that would need a double heart bypass. I didn't smoke, I wasn't obese, I, didn't, I wasn't a diabetic, I didn't drink much. I played a lot of sport. The only thing was that I had, a, I had a high cholesterol. And I was starting to get a bit of heartburn. And so I got some investigations. And having had an, an angiogram, they found that I had a severely narrowed artery and another one that was pretty bad. And having had the surgery, I felt absolutely terrible for the first three days. In fact, so terrible that I was thinking, I wish I hadn't gone ahead with the surgery. I wish I'd waited until my arteries had blocked up and presumably had the subsequent heart attack. That's how I was feeling. If only I'd realised I just needed to be patient. On the fourth day, I started to feel so much better. And on the fifth day, I was discharged from hospital. And I haven't looked back since. Obviously, I'm grateful to God for bringing me safely through and grateful for all the faithful people that prayed for me. And now it's as if it's never happened. And I have great respect for the NHS who cared for me so brilliantly. And it was, it was that that encouraged me to work for them, as I do now. In those first three days of feeling terrible... Being patient in suffering was furthest from my mind. If I had known the difference that was going to happen on the fourth day, then I guess patience might have come a bit easier. But I didn't know that, and we don't know that when we're suffering. Sometimes, when any of us are going through a time of suffering, we cannot see an end to it. But there is a time coming when it will get easier, and an ultimate time when it will be gone forever.
Some may be thinking, well, you suffered for three days, Chris, but I've been suffering or know someone who's been suffering for three weeks, for three months, for three years or longer. I can't pretend to have an answer for those who continually suffer. The question, why would a good God, a loving God, allow suffering to exist in this world, takes on a whole different and painful reality when we are the ones suffering. The Bible contains a lot of suffering, but surprisingly says very little about it. At least not to the end of why God allows suffering. The Bible chooses to focus more on the response to suffering rather than the cause of it. I could say more about why God allows suffering, but that is more than one sermon in itself. So I'm going to leave it to another time and probably leave it to Roger. (laughs) And of course, Jesus is the prime example of someone who suffered terribly without deserving any of it. Hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, not because he was forced to, but because he wanted to. He must be nuts. And yes, he is nuts. Nuts for you and nuts for me. There is no greater love, no greater patience in suffering. There is no one more deserving of our love in return. But as said earlier, God sees the larger picture and is orchestrating everything for his glory, to our benefit. You and I are not the centre. There's a larger story that's unfolding that you and I are not privy to. We have to ask ourselves if we trust that God's plan is good, even if at the moment it doesn't seem good. That's what faith demands. It demands to believe in advance what will only make sense in reverse. That demonstrates how real our faith is, like it did with Job. And fourthly and finally, from verse 12, James tells us to never take an oath. What on earth does that mean? For those who truly demonstrate a real faith, the persistence and patience prescribed for believers, there is no need to invoke an oath, whether by heaven or by earth, that our word is certain. Our testimony should be, that, should be such that when we say yes, it means yes, and when we say no, that's exactly what it means. A person with a reputation for exaggeration or lying often can't get anyone to believe them. We need to always be honest so that others will believe us. By avoiding lies, half-truths and omissions of the truth, we will become a trustworthy person. There are, of course, occasions where it's not appropriate to reveal everything to a certain person for many good reasons. That wouldn't be classed as as dishonest as long as we're not saying something that is blatantly untrue. If a man requires an oath, 
to, to make him tell the truth, then he's already been branded as untrustworthy. The best guarantee of any statement is not an oath, but the character of the person who made it. The ideal is to make ourselves such that no one would ever think of demanding an oath from us, but would be certain that we could always speak the truth. The New Testament view is that every word is spoken in the presence of God and that therefore every word must be true as the Christian must be known to be a person of such honour that it's quite unnecessary ever to put them upon oath. The New Testament doesn't entirely condemn oaths, but it does deplore human tendency to falsehood and lies, which on, on occasions makes oaths necessary. That brings us to the end of our six verses. So to summarise and to remind you, from verses 7 and 8, make sure we are ready for Jesus' return as if it was today. From verse 9, love people unconditionally. We need God to give us that kind of love. Ask him. From verse 10 and 11, demonstrate our faith in the worst of situations. That is very often how people notice there is something different about us. And from verse 12, be trustworthy and honest in all situations. It's good to be known for our honesty. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your demonstration of patience in suffering as you hung on that cross because you're nuts for us, because you can't stop loving us. Please fill us with that same unconditional love for others. Help us to be honest and trustworthy in our dealings with others. And most of all, we pray that each one of us listening will be ready for your return, whether that be today, next week, next year or beyond. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Good to praise God, isn't it? Martin chose that song without necessarily realising a few weeks back when it was the first time, I think, or first or second time when we were allowed back together, but you all had to be wearing masks and nobody was allowed to sing. And somewhat provocatively, Martin was then leading us in that, sing a little louder. And I was seeing from the drums, everybody there thinking, but we can't sing a little louder. He's kind of gloating, it felt like. But the context is very much different now. Thanks ever so much, Chris, for what you've shared uh, today. That would have probably provoked a variety of reactions within each of us. Because if there's a common denominator, it is surely that we have each of us suffered and many of us maybe are still right now in some shape or form going through some form of suffering. Chris and I have certainly both learned what it means to be patient 
in suffering. We are both avid Arsenal supporters. You can pray for us afterwards. Thank you, Alan, for that uh, grin at the back, which I was expecting from the mocking Liverpool fan that I've become accustomed to. But there are some big questions, isn't there? Suffering for no apparent reason, Chris said. What do we do with that? Unanswered prayer. What do we do with that? The kind of questions that we have in our minds that, as believers, we struggle to vocalise because we think that says something otherwise quite negative or dubious about our own faith. Discover when those big questions come. A lot of people conclude, well, there can't be a God at all. The other half think, where can I go but to God? Because without him, I'm completely and utterly stuck. We wouldn't be the first people to actually come to that conclusion, would we? You may well remember some of Jesus' own teaching was at one point in time being um, discerned as being quite difficult. And people then thought, I can't deal with this. This is too, too heavy, too difficult. And they left. What about you? Are you going to go as well? Jesus said to his core. And Peter said, well, where else can we go? Because only you have the words of eternal life. And that is the bottom line, the bottom line, isn't it? Where else can we go? Suffering is tough, but we are here for but a dot. Our God that we worship is the God of the A to Z, the Alpha to the Omega, as Chris rightly said. Trying to think outside of our pain in the here and now, though, is often tough, isn't it? I was reminded of the song, Faithful One, so unchanging. Maybe go back and Google that on YouTube and just let those words wash over you again. Because we've sung that hundreds of times here. And one of the lines in there is, all through the storms, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. May that be wherever we are on our journey, where we end up. Some of that is a choice. And some of that can be a choice we can make right now as we close in prayer together. Father, the question of suffering is a question that has been asked and indeed wrestled with since pretty close to the beginning of time. And we get some pointers. We can see how quite quickly things went pear-shaped when humankind turned its back upon you. And sin, suffering and even death entered our world. And now we're kind of stuck with it. And for what feels like no apparent reason, one person may well be okay whilst another person gets struck down with a particular ailment or goes through a whole variety of mental or emotional torture. And so often we are left with the question of why. We may well not get any answers. Your word reminds us back in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that the secret things belong as unto the Lord. But that which, Lord, that you have made known to us, we are to put into practice. As James has been encouraging us, as we've discovered week by week, 
The stuff that we don't fully get because our heads, our minds, our own worlds are not quite big enough. Help us to come to that place of trusting in you. The one who does know the end from the beginning. The one who will ensure that all things end as they should. Or as Peter said, where else can we go? God, draw near to us in our own pain and help us to seek to alleviate the suffering of others, maybe with just being a friend, maybe a phone call, maybe a loving hug. Help us this day. Meet us with wherever we're at in that journey right now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. If you've got any tough uh, questions, Chris is right there. Uh, please do attack, uh, uh, speak to him uh, afterwards. But more seriously, if you would like someone to pray with you or to, to chat with amidst uh, the turmoil of wherever you might be, please do speak to any of the leaders of the church. We would love to seek to draw alongside you, not necessarily with uh, trite, easy answers, but to identify with, if we can, and to share in your pain. And to unite our prayers with you for God to deliver you from wherever it is that you're at. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for watching. God bless you.